Two weeks ago, we began our study of this epistle uh, of Paul to the Philippians, and within our past two studies, I have pointed out that a predominant theme of this epistle is provided in the first chapter of the epistle, as is often the case in which Paul does so in his writing. In verses 9 through 11 of this chapter, Paul explains his prayer and as well his desire for the church at Philippi. And it is within this prayer that Paul also exhorts the church and lays a foundation for the remaining truths which he will emphasize throughout this epistle. Look with me in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this I pray, Paul writes, for your love, or that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. The implication of Paul's statement, as we have discovered, approve things that are excellent is to regard something as genuine or worthy based on testing or it being proven. In other words, Paul desires that the Philippian believers recognize and regard the things which are proven to be excellent, the things which are tested and proven to be of considerable value, that are distinctive, things that are superior. And last week I pointed out that the greatest demonstration of Paul's emphasis in this epistle is explained in chapter 3. So if you look in chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, we read, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of, which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I'd already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul says in verse 8, he counted all things but loss for the excellency. He says you may prove what things are excellent. He says here, I counted all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And the word excellency here means superior in value or to be of surpassing or exceptional value. And so here Paul really gives us a a great explanation of the superiority of Jesus Christ and the gospel and knowing Christ in relation to all other things that are inferior. That's why he says, I count all things but lost. Everything is inferior to knowing Jesus. And he doesn't just mean knowing salvation, though that's the beginning. He's talking about knowing Christ in his richness, in his fullness, in knowing him as the Godhead bodily, and knowing him as the one whom God has exalted above all, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul's talking about here. So he's saying that I may know him, not that I might be saved, that I may know him in that I might pursue after him and my whole life is now committed and devoted to following and seeking after Jesus, knowing who he is as he's been revealed to be and walking with him 
as he is. And Paul says everything else is inferior. Here we're talking about that which is excellent, those things which are excellent. And if there's anything that is at the pinnacle of excellence, surely it is knowing Jesus. Without question, it is knowing Christ. And so we recognize that there is a knowledge of Christ and a a pursuit after Christ, a desire to know Christ that is to be superior above all other things. And so we recognize that this is important for us to know and to recognize that all things are inferior apart from Jesus Christ. All things are inferior apart from knowing Him in salvation and in relationship. Within the the, uh, first two verses of this epistle, as we looked at last week, Paul provides an introduction in which he identified himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Paul's use of servant in this context implies being under complete control of another or subservient to another. Paul is explaining while he is free from sin and its bondage, he is absolutely enslaved to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Again, by saying servant, Paul identifies with the audience to whom he writes because they also were servants of Christ. But not only does he, does he do so in identifying with them, but more importantly, he identifies as one who is subservient to Jesus Christ, one who is under complete control of Jesus Christ. Romans six sixteen through 18 we read, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, Paul says, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Here Paul explains, I have been made free from sin and now I am the servant of God. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. Second, Paul identified the church as saints in this letter. Verse 1, he goes on to say, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. The noun saints means holy ones, and it implies persons who belong to God. As I mentioned last week, the significance of the identity of the church leadership being the bishops and deacons was not in their specific position, but rather they're in their relationship with God. The leader's identity was not in what they did, but who they were made to be by God in Christ. Because, of course, they are bishops and deacons, but first he addresses all the saints at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So he acknowledges this leadership position or office that was provided by God to them, but they're included with the saints as well. They're not excluded here. So first of all, it's the fact that they are saints, and then there are offices of bishops and deacons. So it's important for us to recognize, again, that we are not ministers who are saints, but we are saints who have been called to serve in ministry. And that is a, there is a distinction to be understood there, because many would think that their, their role or their position is what defines them. No, Christ is our identity. And the office in which we serve or the ministry in which we labor is not our identity. It is Christ who is our identity as followers of Christ. Third, Paul addressed the church as those who had been blessed in Christ. We recognize we are called apart by God to himself in holiness, and there's no higher calling than this. And Paul goes on to say in verse 2, Grace be unto you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I said to you last week, to know the grace of God is to know the peace of God. This grace is that which provides us peace. And this grace which provides us peace with God is excellent. It is, of, it is of exceptional value. It is superior to anything and everything 
known to man. And so the first division of this epistle is within the first two verses of this chapter, which we just reviewed and looked at last week, in more detail, of course. And the second division begins in verse 3, which we began reading this morning, and continues through verse 11. It extends beyond the verse 3, 4, 5, and 6 that we've read this morning into verse 11. And Paul continues his address to the believers in Philippi within this second division by expressing his prayer for them and as well his desire for them. And this, again, was not something uncommon for Paul to do. He does so in, in, in many of his epistles. We find this to be the, the manner in which he writes. Paul begins by expressing his thankfulness for these followers of Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, in verse 3, Paul's expression of thankfulness for the Philippian believers. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. There are very few exceptions in which Paul does not include a prayer of, or comment of thanksgiving within his introductory address of his epistles. Although it was common practice for Paul to include some form of an expression of thanksgiving within the address of his epistles, this address of thanksgiving is a special one, obviously. And I told you there's a special relationship that Paul had with the church at Philippi, as we see in the book of Acts, in which Paul, again, was called the Macedonian call, which Philippi was a chief city or colony within the region of the area of Macedonia. And so that, that uh, Philippi was a special place in the heart of Paul, no doubt, because God had deterred him from going where he wanted to go to proclaim the gospel to now go to Macedonia. And surely, Philippi being a chief city, they were among those to whom Paul ministered when he went to Macedonia. This address of thanksgiving is special, and it carries the weight of a genuine endearment that Paul had for these believers. Paul speaks very personally when stating, notice he says, I thank my God. This is very personal to him. I thank my God. And then he goes on to say, every remembrance of you. And so there are two implications within Paul's statement, every remembrance of you, which we should observe. First, Paul is expressing that these believers are personally precious to him. In other words, Paul is reminding them that they are ever in his thoughts and prayers. He does not have to be reminded of them, for they are always on his mind. They are always on his heart. You know, whenever we truly love someone, and whenever we're close to someone, it's not that we necessarily think about them every single moment of the day, but they are ever before us. They are constantly in our thoughts constantly in our minds. They are constantly being, uh, being considered, if you will. Um, for those who are married, for instance, I mean, think of it like this, if you will, even in this degree or to this degree, although the motivation may be different behind it, yet the reality is as one who is married, there are very few things that if you're married that you do that you probably don't consider your spouse in it. Whether it be, are they going to be angry? <laughs> are they going to approve? Am I in trouble for this? <laughs> Or considering them in the actual action. Why? Because they are in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our minds, because they are, they are near to us. They are dear to us. Now, we don't do that about everyone, obviously. For instance, um, when I, if I were to make a purchase uh, uh, for something that I needed, of course, I, a large purchase especially, I'm going to consider uh, my wife and my family in this. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean I think about all of you every time I go to buy something. Because not that you're not dear to me or near to me, but in that capacity, there's definitely a different relationship that exists. 
And so in this case, Paul is dear to the church at Ephesus. They, the elders met with him and wept over him because he, they may not see him or they knew he, they would not see him again. And, and we know that to be true according to our, our reading in the scriptures. But yet at the same time, here at Philippi, these, these believers had a special place in Paul, Paul's heart because God had specifically directed him to them. God had sent him directly to them. And of course, that formed a connection and a bond, obviously, that is being expressed when Paul says, every remembrance of you. Second, Paul rejoices at any mention of these believers. When he says every remembrance of you, it it is an expression that these believers are are specifically personally precious to him. But also, he's saying at every remembrance of you, he's also, the implication would be that at any mention of you, uh, that I'm thanking God. And so if or when other believers and or churches might mention the believers in Philippi, Paul rejoiced greatly at the very mention of this church, which was so dear to his heart. Paul had expressed a similar thankfulness for the believers he addressed in his epistle of Romans, in which Paul speaks of his thankfulness and continual prayers on their behalf. Notice Romans 1, 7 through 9. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. So you see a very similar thankfulness that Paul mentions concerning the believers at Rome with those in his introduction to those at Philippi. He is saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you because you are implanted in my heart, because God sent me directly to you at the Macedonian call as it's referenced, because Philippi is within that region, because God has, has allowed me to minister to you, establish the church in your region, but specifically directly sending me to you. I thank my God for this upon every thought you're in my heart, but then also any mention. That is made. Notice again in Romans 1 where he says in verse 8 that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Then he goes on to say in verse 9, without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. So concerning the believers in Rome, he is saying that their faith was spoken of by all those who knew of them, that their faith was spoken of, their following after Christ, their desire to know Christ. And he is thankful and and that keeps them before him. In, in, in his own prayers unto the Lord. Second, notice with me Paul's reason for his thankfulness concerning the Philippian believers. Verses 4 and 5. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul explained that the Philippians were not only continually in his thoughts, as he says previously, but more importantly, they remained in his prayers. What's more is that Paul's prayers for these believers were ones in which he rejoiced upon thinking of them and praying for them. You know, there is a great difference between praying for someone because you're burdened about them in their spiritual condition, if you will, and praying for someone rejoicing in them walking in truth. And Paul here is saying that I I make requests with all joy. There is joy present within me as I pray before God and unto God on your behalf because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Obviously, there was a reason for such joy and thankfulness which Paul expresses. 
Paul declared this reason in verse 5 when he says again, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul's thankfulness for these Philippian believers was rooted in the joy in which they shared due to their continued unity in the gospel. Paul will further explain what fellowship in the gospel is in verse 7. We won't make it that far this morning, but let's go ahead and take a look at this uh, before we move forward. Here he says in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel. But notice in verse 7, Paul explains what that means. He says in verse 7 of the same chapter, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. This is what it means to be fellowship in, have fellowship in the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 5. He explains it then in verse 7. So he says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Remember, he already said that. I thank God upon every remembrance of you. I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds, in the defense, and confirmation of the gospel. This is the fellowship. And then he says, because you're in fellowship in the gospel in these areas, guess how else you are in fellowship? You're partakers of my grace. We're also in fellowship within the same grace of God that is given to us in the gospel. As we've discovered within our Wednesday Bible study of John's second epistle, John expressed the same thankfulness for the joy that he knew as a result of believers he loved who continued in the truth of the gospel of Christ. Second John, he says, I rejoiced greatly, verse 4, that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Then in, in third John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So in both second and third John, second John, just to give you a quick background, if you've not been with us in our studies on Wednesday, Second John's epistle is really a concise summarization of First John, but he's writing specifically to a lady and her children, of her children, or to a church possibly, a, a specific church body. Whereas in First John, he's writing, it's a general epistle as it's referred to, meaning that it's written to all saints, all believers, all churches. Second John is written more so specifically to an individual, unnamed, or to a specific church body. While 3 John is unto Gaius. He's writing specifically to a named man in 3 John. But yet in 2 John verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. This is interesting because he says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children. And the, the implication here is that there were some of this lady's children or some of within the church, if you will, that were walking in truth. And John says, there's great joy in my heart that I experience because of those who are walking in truth. Now, this was in light of many deceivers who were coming in, attempting to sway them from the truth. And John says, yet I have great joy, despite there are many who would prevent, attempt to prevent your children from walking in truth. I have tremendous joy that your, there are some of your children who are walking in truth. But then in 3 John, again writing unto Gaius, he says, speaking of Gaius himself, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, children, of course, is a plural noun, plural in number here. But yet, he's talking of Gaius included among others who are walking in truth. Now, this context, as we saw last Wednesday evening of 3 John verse 4, is in light of following verses in which Diotrephes, 
who loved to have preeminence among the church would not even allow John to come in and minister and would not allow others to come in. And so he wasn't really walking in truth, obviously. Even if he was teaching correctly, he wanted preeminence among the body of Christ. And so he would not allow John and others, and he, would, he kind of forbade them from being a part. And so here's what John is saying in, in relation to, I have no greater joy. He's saying, Gaius, there is no greater joy than to know that you are walking in truth and others are walking in truth despite the fact that there are those who do not walk in truth and the fact that they don't walk in truth personally impacts and affects me in a negative manner. Nonetheless, I have no greater joy. So what John is saying in both of these accounts, in 2nd and 3rd John, is that there is greater joy present for those who are walking in truth. That supersedes the truth that there are those or the fact that there are those who are not. And there is great significance and great joy that is experienced because of this. And so Paul is saying something very similar here when he's saying that, that not only are they always in every prayer of his, but he says, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Verse 4, all, for you all making requests with joy, there it is, with joy for your fellowship in the gospel. From the first day until now. So Paul and John both were equally thankful for the faithful testimony of fellow believers walking in true fellowship of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially those the Lord had used them to reach with the gospel. So I, we can say with John without question, we have no greater joy than to hear that our children walk in truth. Now you can say that from a physical perspective obviously if you have children there's a tremendous joy but here John is talking not about his literal offspring he's talking about spiritually those whom God had used him to reach with the gospel those whom God had used him to minister the gospel to he's saying there is no greater joy that is present or possible than to know and to know how not that you hear their claim but the testimony of all those who know them are to this reality that they are walking in truth. The persecution they experience is a testimony they are walking in truth. The fact that the testimony of their own lives, the profession of faith, but then their consistency in walking in the faith is this evidence for which John rejoices. It is noteworthy that Paul speaks of their fellowship as that which existed from the first day, that is the first day of their faith in Christ, until now, which is to say until that present time. You know, too many people view faith in a similar manner of a, as to that of a rope bridge that, or a suspension bridge, if you will, that is constantly swaying back and forth. Let me explain what I mean by that. In other words, me, many people view faith as, oh boy, it takes real courage to take another step because this is so unstable. This is so, this is so the sway is so much that it, it takes real courage to take a next step and we really hope that this will be sufficient to bridge the gap from this life into an eternity with God. Listen, that is not faith. Faith is not swaying back and forth unstably, and faith is not something we have to say, well, we're really, we really, we're really trusting this, you know, and, and every step is really difficult. Such a misconstrued perspective of faith is both sad and tragic. Faith is not some unstable bridge to which we must cling in hopes that it is sufficient to hold us until we make it across this timeline of life into eternity. Rather, faith rests upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. 
Everything else is unstable. Everything else is shaking. Faith is the only solid thing we have. Faith, in other words, is not unstable or instable, but faith provides us stability in a world of instability. 1 John 5, 4, John wrote, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And we've dealt with that for, for in, in some detail in our study through 1 John. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God uh, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice again, he says, For your fellowship, in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 1, I rejoice, I pray for you, always rejoicing and thankful for you because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Why? Because they remain consistent in their walk of faith. Faith provided them stability in a world of instability. It was not something that was wishy-washy. In fact, does Paul not warn us as well that we are to take heed and be rooted and grounded in truth that we be not tossed about by every wind of doctrine? And here in 1 Peter, he says, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So Paul rejoiced, not because of his confidence. This is what you really need to understand here. You say, oh man, the Philippian church must have been really special. And Paul is saying, I'm so thankful because you are consistent in walking in faith. And I'm so thankful because you've not, you've not wavered and you're not, you're not uh, wishy-washy and you're not uh, back and forth, vacillating, if you will, back and forth. He says, so I, I'm so grateful for this. And it's easy for us to be, wow, what a church, right? This must be a great church for Paul to be writing to them in such a manner. But let us not be distracted from that which Paul is truly saying. As Peter says, we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So Paul rejoiced not because of his confidence in the Philippian believers, but because of the evidence of faith being demonstrated by their continued fellowship in the gospel in which Paul therefore placed all confidence. Paul's confidence was not in the faithfulness of these Philippian believers. It was in the evidence of faith within them. And Paul's confidence is not in their action of faithfulness. His confidence is in the very object of faith. And so he is saying, I am thankful for your continued fellowship in the gospel from the beginning until now. And we see this more clearly defined within the following verse in which we discover, third, the confidence behind Paul's thankfulness for the testimony of Philippian believers. Let's look at verse 6, and Paul really just summarizes it all right here. Being confident of this very thing. Oh, here's my confidence. Being confident of what? Oh, that you've been faithful since your profession, so I just am confident you're going to remain faithful. No, Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying, here is my confidence, being confident of this very thing, that he, where's Paul's confidence? It's in Christ, that he which hath begun from the first day until now. Did he not just say that? Who began this? Did the Philippians start this journey by their own uh, initiative? Of course not. He's saying, being confident of this very thing, that he, Christ, which began our God the Father, which began a good work in you, will perform it until the day 
of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul's confidence. Here's what Paul is saying. Are you ready? While the faithfulness of those following after Christ surely is that which is, is honorable and that which is right, Paul is not placing confidence in men within their, in their faithfulness. He is placing confidence in that which is excellent, that which is superior. What is superior here? The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, oh, remain faithful, be faithful. You have been faithful. I rejoice in all this. But Paul recognized the reason they were faithful. Paul understood they were not faithful because they were some elite group of believers. They were only faithful in following after Christ because God is faithful to complete that which he's begun in them. Again, Romans chapter 8 tells us this. We know that he is going to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Who does that work? Not me. It is God. So Paul is saying we are confident, but here's the confidence. That he, our confidence is in him and in his purpose and in his faithfulness. He began this work, that's all on him. And he will perform this work, that's all on him, (laughs) until the end. Paul expressed this thankfulness for these believers, continued fellowship in the gospel since the first day, that is since the moment they came to faith in Christ. Yet within this verse, Paul expounds upon the confidence he had that these believers would continue in the gospel, but his confidence, again, not being in the Philippians themselves, but his confidence was in the faithfulness of Christ who dwelt within the believers in Philippi. Let me say it to you like this. Let's just make this very personal. And you should feel the same about me, okay? You should, you should view me the same way I'm about to say about you. Here's the reality of it. I do not have any confidence that any one of you are going to be faithful to God. I don't. But I have absolute, entire confidence that those of you, those of you who know Jesus Christ, that he's going to be faithful in you to perform that which he has begun. Do you see the difference? Now, that will look like faithfulness through your life. But hear me, it is not that you are faithful, it's that he is faithful. And his faithfulness is demonstrated through us. And Paul says, this is what brings me joy. Your continued fellowship in the gospel, here's why. Because Paul knows they are not faithful in their fellowship of the gospel because of what they, who they are, what they are doing. They are only faithful in the fellowship of the gospel because Christ who initiated this work will perform this work. And he will complete it. The moment we begin to put confidence in men is the very moment we have negated to put our confidence in God. We don't put our confidence in men. We don't put our confidence in government. We don't put our confidence in pastors. We don't put our confidence in the church. Our confidence is in Christ and He that hath begun this work, knowing that He will complete this work. Let me, let me boil it down a little more for you, simplify it to make it a little easier for you to understand. Because in no way am I saying, of course, let me, let me preface, in no way am I saying that we have no responsibility to submit ourselves to God. Of course we do. That's the point. God's faithfulness to us brings us to that submission to Him because He is the one working that. But one day, as a believer in Jesus Christ, the Scripture tells us that we will be blameless before Him, will we not? We'll be without sin, will we not? We shall see him as he is. We, we, we shall be as he is. Not meaning we become gods by any means. Saying that we will be righteous and holy without sin. Just as he is righteous and holy without sin. Because we are in, in him. 
and He has dwelled in us. So we understand that. So we recognize that, that we will be blameless and holy and righteous before Him. But here's the question. Will our blamelessness, righteousness, or holiness have anything at all to do with what we've done or not done? No. We will only be blameless, holy, and righteous. Why? Because of what He has done. <laughs> because that's who He is. It's interesting. Paul spoke of this truth of God's faithfulness to establish the Corinthians in his letter to the church at Corinth. Now listen, this is a church in which Paul is writing a letter of rebuke. Are we aware of that? Paul is right. We've studied that years back now. A letter of rebuke in which Paul harshly deals with them because of their sin and their arrogance and their ignorance. But listen to what Paul says in the first chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Look how he begins. Look, I am thankful for you that are of the church because grace has been given to you that in everything ye are enriched by him. You have everything necessary because you've been enriched by God. In all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Do you see what Paul's saying? The testimony of Christ was confirmed, established in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you, establish you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the next statement. God, read it with me, God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul wrote of the faithfulness of God to equip, to enrich, to confirm or establish the Corinthians in the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although Paul's letter to the Corinthians was of rebuke due to their sin, their ignorance, and their arrogance, Paul begins this letter by contrasting the rebuke which he would give them with the reminder of his confidence in God's faithfulness to prevent his church, the church of the Lord Jesus, blameless. Herein is Paul's confidence as he expresses it to the Philippians. Verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul was confident in and of. Paul was confident that the Corinthian believers would stand before God in eternity just as blameless as the Philippian believers, as the Ephesian believers, as the Roman believers, as all believers. But wait a minute, the Corinthians, man, they are living lives of carnality. They are spiritually immature, and there's no excuse for that. And boy, oh boy, how they missed out on the joy of the knowing the fullness of God in Christ because they were babes drinking milk, not eating meat. They missed out, no doubt, in their lifetime, as Paul expresses. But at the same time, Paul had no less confidence. You need to see this. No less confidence, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9 there, that they would be presented before God blameless. But then the question is, well, how can this be or why? And verse 9 tells us, why is this so? God is faithful. 
Here it is. Look, there is great encouragement I give to you this morning. You are a messed up bunch of people. And I am too. But God is faithful. We may pale in comparison to others, but you know what? God is faithful. Regardless of where we are, not that we should excuse that, not that we should not grow and be mature in the faith, because we should be and we are to be and we're called to be. But hear me, God is faithful. And the only reason that you or I will continue in the fellowship of the gospel, the only reason that you and I will stand before God blameless, the only reason you and I will stand before Him righteous and holy, the only reason you and I will stand before Him uncondemned, but rather in grace and mercy, is because He is faithful to complete, to perfect, to perform that which He has begun. And that's the only reason. None of us should have confidence in ourselves or in others. But our confidence must be in Jesus Christ alone, as God is faithful in Christ to keep us and preserve us. I concede and I rejoice in the words of Jude, Jude 24, 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion, and power both now and ever. Amen. There's really nothing more to say.